Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Sister Alicia Torres, one of the original sisters of the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago and managing editor of the National Eucharistic Revival Newsletter. Sister Alicia, thanks for joining us. It's so great to be with you, Andrew. We did a series of episodes on discernment and vocations last year, but we didn't give a lot of attention to the call to love as it's lived out in various forms of consecrated life. And that absence, coupled with our recent chat with Father Vasek about the Eucharistic revival, provided a good opportunity for us to have you on and talk a little bit more about both. So how did your community, the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago, get started? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. So back in the early 2000s, then Archbishop of Chicago, Cardinal George, who since passed away, was looking for people to help support starting an outreach to serve the poor in our great city of Chicago, particularly on the west side, where many Catholic parishes had closed for lack of parishioners. And the Cardinal was very concerned that it would appear that the Catholic Church was abandoning the poor because there are many people in poverty on the west side of Chicago. And so he reached out to the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, knowing that they had great success in starting missions to serve the poor in urban centers, even around the world at that point. And eventually, Bishop, now Bishop Lombardo, then Father Bob Lombardo, came out to Chicago to see what was available and have ongoing conversation with Cardinal George at the time about starting a Catholic mission in the city. And so he ended up coming himself, Father Bob Lombardo, to Chicago in 2005 to start the mission of Our Lady of the Angels at the former Our Lady of the Angels Parish Plant Center in West Humble Park. And so since then, uh, it's been rebuilt building by building, miraculously, um, millions of dollars, no loans, the goodness of God's people, in-kind donations, manual labor, you name it, it's happened here to transform the old rectory, church, former school, old convent, and even a guest house so that we can serve literally thousands of people on the West Side every week with basic needs, especially food. um, And of course, opportunities to invite them to come know more deeply our Lord Jesus, especially through the Gospels. So that's the mission. And in those early years, a lot of young people were coming to volunteer and feeling drawn to Franciscan life. And so Father Bob would you know, encourage um, those young people, uh, myself as one of those original discerners, um, to go look at other Franciscan communities. But then he sensed perhaps the Holy Spirit is raising up a new community here to serve in Chicago. And so he discerned that. He brought that to Cardinal George. And so our community was canonically established in the Catholic Church in 2010 here in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Um, And since then, we've had tremendous support from the local church. Cardinal Stupich has been a very great friend of our community and so supportive of the work we do with the poor teaching in poor Catholic schools and evangelization. Um, And of course, everything centered on our relationship with Jesus and the Holy Eucharist. Could you live out your call to love if Jesus wasn't really present in the Eucharist? Yeah, that's a really great question, Andrew. It's somewhat of a philosophical question, right? Because in John's letters, we read clearly that God is love. He created us from love for love. Our theology teaches us And God chose to send his beloved son to save us, to redeem us. And Jesus um, chose to remain always with us in a most special way through the Holy Eucharist. So I think as Jesus established it now, it would be tremendously hard 
for me to live my call to love without the Eucharist. However, God in his providence can transcend anything, right? Even that great, mysterious and august sacrament and his presence in the Holy Eucharist. So if for some reason the Lord allowed for me to not be able to go to Mass or to be able to receive the Eucharist, um, like some of our great saints couldn't receive the Eucharist as they were dying because they just weren't capable. I trust God would sustain me, but I think just knowing that the Blessed Sacrament is in every tabernacle around the whole world, even is a great consolation. Yeah. So I think God wants the Eucharist for us. That's why he makes it available. And some people have made tremendous sacrifices, even to the point of their own lives to protect uh, the dignity of the Eucharist and to make sure that it's available for God's people. So the people that you're called to love then, where do they find themselves? Like what kind of you know needs are they are they bringing to you? And what sort of needs are you maybe sensing that they have, whether or not they openly advertise them? Especially right now, there's a great need people have to access food, especially healthy food. We have, you know, over lately, we've had over 500 families every week coming to our food pantry. And we actually have a lot of migrants coming here from Ecuador. And we'll receive people who've only been in the country for a few days or a week who are very unaware of even just the basic things that they need because it's really cold in Chicago. They don't have coats. They don't have boots. Um, So just those basic needs as well to keep people's bodies protected from the very cold weather. But, you know, people need love. They need to know that they're precious, that their lives matter, that they are cared for and protected. And so I think there's also an opportunity anytime we encounter the people God sends to us to, to somehow be the face of God for them, to be the love of Jesus for them. The human heart is just hungering for a relationship with God. And so if we can somehow reveal God's love to them and then invite them to take whatever the next step is to encountering the Lord and his loving mercy, that's just such a huge gift. So we do, you know, we do have opportunities like that as well, where we welcome people into the church for prayer service with scripture and preaching and then a nice meal together as a community that we prepare. So there are many ways, I think, but, you know, if your basic needs are not met, then it's going to be really, really hard for you to to think of that next level of interiorly what's going on, what's moving. So to meet those basic needs and then from there to invite people into Whatever is that next best step of encounter with the Lord is so important. You can't exactly make a confession of faith when you're at risk of hypothermia. Or I suppose you could, but it's not exactly reasonable to expect somebody to do so. Right. I imagine when they when you demonstrate, this probably isn't the, the immediate reason why you do it, but when you demonstrate that you're loving people in these very immediate material ways, that probably shows them that you have something more to offer them too, and that they can go to you for even more than just those material needs. Right. I mean, so many people even will stop us on the street and ask us for a prayer to pray with them right there, to pray for someone in their family, you know, whether it's someone that they love who's struggling with addiction or a child or spouse who might have been just recently incarcerated or their children are struggling with school or they have an elderly parent that's dying, you know, or for themselves as well. People, for the most part, they know when the choices that they are making are not leading them to peace and joy. Like they know when they're sinning. I mean, we all know. And it's a deep, a deep movement of the heart that's just so evident. 
And to me, it is so inspiring to encounter people who may not have a lot of material resources, but are so humble and transparent about the state of their spiritual lives. You know, I'm struggling. I'm a sinner. I need God's help. I need mercy. And I think that that's something that the poor, the vulnerable have to teach us. You know, they don't hide. They don't hide their situation. It's they don't have the luxury to hide it like many of us do, you know, and it inspires me to want to be a better follower of Jesus, to want to be honest with him about my sins and my own struggles, receive that merciful love of his so that I can be ever more free to share that love with others. Because that's what people are really, I think, starving for love, but especially love in the form of mercy, because we have a very merciless world, especially now in the West, in the United States. The world is just starving, I think, for mercy. Is that refreshing to have that kind of clarity on the part of people who, you know, they're in material need and those needs need to be answered, but they have that kind of clarity to to see themselves the way we all are, whereas people who are more materially comfortable, like myself, are more inclined to either hide or self-delude into thinking that we're not so bad or we're not, you know, we're not sinning in this or that way. Yeah, many, many people that we encounter are just so honest about their situation. I mean, and certainly anybody from any socioeconomic, you know, stratus can be honest about their situation, but there's a there is just like a fresh rawness, uh, you know, when you're working with the poor and the vulnerable. And in some ways, honestly, I think that they accompany us on our journey of of transformation, of recognizing I'm a sinner, I need God's help. You know, it's really hard to avoid that when you look around and you see a neighborhood where buildings are boarded up, people are on the corners overdosing from drugs, all these sorts of things. It's like the effects of sin are everywhere, whether or not people are culpable for the situation in which they find themselves, but the effects of sin are everywhere. So it's hard to deny it. So in those cases where you have provided the sort of immediate material needs for people, and you're in a teaching setting, and people either are unfamiliar with Jesus's real presence in the Eucharist, or they're familiar with it, and they just don't accept it. What are some like common obstacles that people have? Honestly, most of the guests that we serve on the West Side that I get to talk to are not actually Catholic. Most of them would be Baptist or some sort of non-denominational Protestant. The majority of our Catholics, which actually are a lot, they mostly speak Spanish, and I don't have the ability to speak Spanish. Some of our sisters and Bishop Lombardo, they speak Spanish, so they have a little bit more ability to have those conversations with them. However, I do have two stories that maybe can respond to your question. I think first of all, like as far as what is an obstacle to believing in the real presence, I think one of the greatest obstacles is, are we presenting the real presence to people in a way where their hearts can actually be touched to receive it? And so the story I have is from a number of years ago, we had very small, I mean, elementary school age children that we were working with in the neighborhood, none of whom were Catholic. And we always tell them the truth. You know, we don't make anything up. And they were all standing on the front lawn of the rectory and And one of the front windows is the chapel and there's an altar and a very simple tabernacle, a gold tabernacle. And so these kids were all on our front lawn, on the rectory front lawn, rather, jumping up and down, looking inside. And one of the kids was kind of the ringleader. And he he was telling all the other kids, 
God is in that box. God <laughs> is in that gold box. Because one of our sisters had explained that Jesus is truly present with us in a special, mysterious way, and that he's living in the gold box. So this kid got all his friends from the neighborhood, his little Baptist kids who are forlorn, <laughs> and explained that that's where God was. And it was just such a beautiful moment because their hearts are so open, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're just very, very ripe for evangelization because they haven't been kind of jaded you know, and they still have the capacity to imagine. Yeah. And so there's like some traces there or like the nascent structures for a sacramental worldview, which we start to lose as we get older, if it's not cultivated. So their only obstacle was like just peeping over the windowsill. Right. Basically. Yeah, they're okay. just jumping up and down <laughs> to see in there. This is so great. And then I do have the, the joy of teaching in an inner city Catholic school. And most of the children are Catholic. Many of them are first generation hear from different Spanish-speaking countries. We do have a couple of English language learners as well. You know, but I I think it's very important, even from the youngest age, to start to introduce children to the real presence. So I I start to teach them kindergarten, so around five years old. I have a lot of stories about the real presence in small children, but one in particular is very striking. There was a little boy we had the joy of receiving into our school for he was only with us for a year but it was his kindergarten year. And when he came to us, he was nonverbal. So he seemed to be able to follow directions, but he didn't really talk. We weren't sure what was going on exactly with the child. And we didn't have at that time any sort of evaluation to see what kind of learning supports he needed. But I did my best to include him in, in the different learning activities. And we did do a few lessons about the real presence. And, you know, I would draw the host on the on the whiteboard and we did some activities where there was a host. And if you lift the host, you see the face of Jesus. So there's like a connection there for the children. And so then a couple months later, like it had been a while since we had intentionally had a lesson on the Eucharist. I just had an intro warm-up activity for the kindergartners as they arrived to religion class. And it was just to draw a picture of God. And almost all the children drew Jesus or Jesus on the cross or Jesus holding their hand. But this little one drew a circle with a cross in the middle. Wow. And said to him, what did you draw? And just kept pointing, God, God, God with his finger. And so this little boy who could barely talk had allowed to sink into his heart that that circular piece of bread is God, (laughs) you know? So he believed. And I think that honestly, I really believe, Andrew, that our children, the Lord can allow them to be missionaries for the Eucharist, you know, because many, we know that many families who send their children to Catholic school actually don't regularly go to Sunday mass. We can introduce their children and cultivate help their children cultivate a relationship with Jesus, especially at mass, school masses, in the Eucharist, visits to the church, adoration, whenever possible, that the children can share that joy with their parents. So I think that there's a lot there for us to reflect on um, with our Catholic schools and the potential for the schools to be a vehicle for evangelization to the families. That's hugely important. One of the studies that kind of motivated the Eucharistic revival coming to be in the first place had to do with the decline of faith in the real presence among Catholics and among families. And a big determinant of that was whether or not the parents believed that Jesus was really present in the Eucharist and whether or not they had that weekly habit of bringing the kids to Mass. So if we can reverse that, 
which is part of the goal of the Eucharistic revival, and revive that faith in the parents, then that can go a long way towards sustaining Eucharistic faith in the long run. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. Yeah, we need more more kids like that. <laughs> yeah, we, they in order to kind of get me going, third grade will start clapping out incarnation, incarnation, like a chant. <laughs> I mean, we, we, yeah, we have a lot of, yes, we're learning some really important Catholic vocabulary. <laughs> Speaking of your your ministry of catechesis, five-year-olds are not your only audience. Uh, <laughs> You also run the newsletter for the Eucharistic Revival, which I receive once a week, and that you oversee. Can you tell us a little bit about the the sort of things that people can look for in the newsletter? Absolutely. Yeah, the heart of the revival is the official weekly newsletter of the National Eucharistic Revival. And we strive to provide content that's inspirational, formational, and informational. So every week we have testimonies from Catholics around the country about their experience of Jesus in the Eucharist, whether it be at Mass or in personal prayer time, um, as well as inspiration from the saints and popes. And we try to include every week something that will help us to deepen our understanding of our faith. So we usually say the word catechesis when we talk about faith formation. And so we include catechetical content. And then we want to share the good news of the amazing things that are happening around the country as part of the National Eucharistic Revival. And so we highlight those as well. I am really excited um, that this Lent, we will be using the corporal works of mercy as a thematic lens for our content in the newsletter. And I'm looking forward to growing together with all of our subscribers in making that connection between our faith in the Eucharist and the gift Jesus gives to us of himself at Mass and how we can bring that out into the world by serving our brothers and sisters and accompanying them in their need, um, because that's just so important to live a Eucharistic life. So we want to start to cultivate that idea of what does it mean to live a Eucharistic life? And that's part of our baptismal call, really, to be a Eucharistic missionary. I think it's a great way to understand who we are as Catholics, to bring the message of the loving mercy of our Lord to the world, especially through the profound gift of the Eucharist. That's why the go forth comes right after the communion, right? At the end of mass, because it's not really supposed to be an end. It's supposed to be ascending. So that's really cool. And yeah, I can personally vouch. There's uh, there is a lot of content like that and much more. So we'll have a link to the newsletter sign up in the episode notes. So if you're not already receiving it, you can be soon. Sister Alicia, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been so great, Andrew. Thank you so much. And you and all your listeners are in my prayers. Please pray for especially the Eucharistic Revival. And we are continuing our run-up to the Academy Awards with another film that is nominated for Best Picture. Karabak, what did we just see? I honestly have no idea. I think I know it's apparently I saw everything everywhere all at once, but it felt sort of like everything and nothing. I'm also wondering what we what we just watched, but the title of it is Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is quite a bit more R-rated than we thought it was going to be. So fair warning right up front. If nobody's warned you. Blanket spoiler alert for this movie. We'll be talking about the entire thing. This movie came out in 2022 and stars Michelle Yeoh as an immigrant small business owner whose life is crashing down around her and in the middle of all that is pulled into a sci-fi action adventure involving multiverses and, as the title might suggest, everything else you can imagine. 
Now, Kara, you were you were saying you were caught a little off guard because you have an existing positive relationship with Michelle Yeoh's movies and you're hoping for maybe something more along those lines, right? I feel like I was lied to a little bit. Like I am I definitely like I'm a big Michelle Yeoh fan. Tomorrow Never Dies might be in like top 10 movies I watched as a kid, which is really saying something. And I was like, oh, this was kind of billed as like an action movie. Michelle Yeoh still being amazing, which, yes, she is. She's great in this. Yeah. A lot of stuff that was happening that was like, wow, not so amazing. <laughs> I can't say it was wholly unenjoyable, though. I, it's, it's a very strange movie. I don't want to give people the wrong impression. It's not a terrible movie. I think you need to know going into it that it is like extremely mm. weird and there's this weird kind of humor that they're trying to have that sort of feels like it's trying to be transgressive, like it's sexual, but it's also just sort of bathroom potty humor. And it just feels like it's trying to offend you. And it does, but it kind of doesn't have, I feel like it doesn't have quite the transgressiveness that they're going for. It just feels a little bit like they're trying too hard. And I feel like it distracts from some of the potentially positive things to say about the movie. They're not really able to like restrain themselves, I guess, with the jokes because it's in the title. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. So they can't really dial it back. The physical comedy was so strange, even when it wasn't being transgressive in the content, it was still uncomfortable. Even aside from the bathroom humor and some of the sexual humor, there are just other gags where like in order to jump from one multiverse to another, a character has to just do something crazy and random in order to activate the plot mechanism, which is something like intentionally giving yourself paper cuts or chewing gum that has like already been chewed and dried to the underside of a desk and crazy stuff like that. And just seeing instance after instance of that, where it's usually like violating some sort of bodily impulse or some sort of strange way of violating the human body that just would not normally occur to you just it gets to be overwhelming and just bothersome not even not even like necessarily morally objectionable although maybe i don't know um it's just a lot (laughs) you know it's interesting i only just made this connection as you were talking ultimately not to like give away the entirety of this conversation like Ultimately, this is a movie kind of about nihilism and existentialism. This has a serious theme to it also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I feel like the like what you're saying about the low-key violation of the human body feels somehow connected to that in mm. strange ways. Like, I don't know if it's necessarily trying to say that the body isn't valuable or isn't, you know, a thing worth caring for because obviously there's like a lot of physical things going on here but and you know certainly i'd say any kind of like an action movie is a celebration of of like cool things that humans can do even if it's you know sort of fake and there's a lot of that in here too that's done very well it's executed very well if you like me came for the michelle yo action scenes you will not be disappointed she is as amazing as ever (laughs) but yeah, there just feels like there's something like those ideas are connected. Like the fact that it's this sort of mm. physical de- degradation that feels connected to the sort of philosophy that is un- apparently underlying this entire movie. We'll definitely get to that philosophy later. I think maybe we can move into talking about maybe some of the the causes that lead into the characters embracing that kind of philosophy. So this is an immigrant family from China. Oddly, so this is um, sort of an homage to some Hong Kong action, but they don't speak the same dialect of Chinese. Um, I don't know if dialect is even the right word. 
they speak Mandarin, which is what they speak in Beijing and the sort of the, the standard language that the government is trying to sort of implement across the country. And in the South, further away from the, the capital, they still speak Cantonese, like in Hong Kong. So all these classic Hong Kong action movies are typically in Cantonese, which means I can't understand a word of it because I only studied Mandarin in college. <laughs> but I could understand some words in this movie, even though I haven't studied it in a while, which is strange because none of the Chinese actors, with the possible exception of the grandfather, spoke Mandarin in real life growing up. <laughs> Michelle Yeoh was born in Malaysia. They're all ethnically Chinese, uh, Han Chinese, but Michelle Yeoh was born in Malaysia in an English-speaking household, then learned Cantonese, then learned Mandarin. I apologize if I mispronounce this, but uh, the, the male lead in the movie, Ki Hui Quan, is also ethnically Chinese, but born in Vietnam, and his family immigrated to America in the 70s, also did not grow up speaking Mandarin. But that's their mother tongue in the, in the movie. And it, it sort of matters because like some of the translations are, as you would expect whenever there's a movie in subtitles, and a good amount of this movie has, is spoken in Mandarin Chinese and has subtitles. Like one where they call um, one character a white girl. And I, I heard the word they said there. It was Lao Wai, which I have been called. <laughs> does, not mean, <laughs> does not mean white girl. It means foreigner or outsider. And it's sort of a buzzword or it's not quite a slur, um, but it's just what, what Chinese people, especially Chinese people living in China, think when they see anybody who doesn't look Chinese, because it's a very racially homogeneous society. And so that, yeah, that doesn't quite mean white girl. It's a little bit more stigmatized than that. Quick question. Do you know the directors who I think are also the writers of the movie, are they Chinese? Uh, one of them is of Chinese descent. The, so they're both named Daniel. One of them's white, one of them's Asian. The Daniels. A few other elements of Chinese culture that I thought were kind of poignant. Michelle Yeoh's character, her name is Evelyn in the movie. And her Evelyn's father wishes he had a son instead of a daughter. And uh, at several points in the movie, for plot reasons, uh, is attempting to kill either his daughter or his granddaughter for the greater good of saving the universe. And this kind of stuck out to me because there is a history in China of female infanticide, which was intensified during the one child policy in the late 70s and the 80s, uh, up until just a few years ago, where there's a huge sex imbalance in China because there are women missing from the population, basically. And that sort of stuck out to me as something that maybe was informing this tragic choice, mm. which seemed kind of true to that experience. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that was sort of an interesting way to call attention to it, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. I know the backstory of the film is that they originally wanted to do it with Jackie Chan and he like basically wasn't available. And so they oh. asked Michelle Yeoh to do it. And so they like rewrote it to oh. be fitting, more fitting for her. And oh, I think that's surprising. the directors were saying that, you know, basically changing it changed the dynamic and they... Of course, they're going to say that they think it went in a better direction. But it is kind of interesting just thinking about the fact that, like, because the protagonist is a woman, it does change the implications of the kinds of relationships that you're trying to portray. Yeah. You know, if the idea is, like, she needs to be sort of estranged from her family, like, what does it mean for a daughter where she's obviously the only child in China to run away with her 
love that her dad doesn't approve of. And yeah, I think that it's, yeah. it is sort of like an interesting thing to think through. No, no, I think that's a fair way of looking at it. And I didn't, I didn't know that bit about Jackie Chan. I, I assume that was, this movie was sort of hatched, fully formed. Yeah, apparently they started writing it in like 2010. And it was like before the concept of the multiverse was oh. as popularized as it is today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is the sort of Chinese background talking or if it's just these characters. When they're mulling a divorce between Michelle Yeoh and her husband, played by Kiwi Kwan, whose name is Waymond um, with a W, they, they're sort of questioning the possibility of divorce in a way that I don't think that most uh, white people in the U.S. would really, they would just assume, yes, divorce is a, is a real thing we could do if we both decided to um, or if one of us decided to. It seemed like there was more psychological resistance to it. At one point, Evelyn says to Waymond that she's like, we made a solemn vow, which I thought was very interesting that like, I guess I, I'm not familiar with, you know, sort of like Chinese marriage culture, but just as, you know, a modern American, I thought that was a very interesting, like, they have some kind of sort of covenantal understanding of what they've entered into. I don't know either. But it's kind of neat. They wear red on their wedding days. Uh, it looks really good. That's like instead of white. I mean, now like it's westernizing and they wear white more often, but white traditionally was a funeral color. Oh, interesting. Although I think in Western culture, wasn't it Queen Victoria who popularized the idea of a white wedding dress? Like oh, it was, was it really? Not really. Yeah, it's somewhat more modern. Okay. So another language thing, the, la the last language thing I had, when Joy, the daughter who is also sort of the villain of the movie, makes her big entrance as this quote-unquote omnipotent threat. One of the cops investigating a crime scene tells her she can't be there, and she has this monologue about what can't means and what it doesn't mean. And this is clearer in Chinese. Um, there are three words for can't that they have where you understand which kind of can't the person is saying. Oh, interesting. The whole speech is about, do you mean physically unable or not allowed? Because it sounds like you're saying physically unable, but I'm physically able to do this thing you're saying I can't do, which extends all the way to like manipulating the fabric of reality because she has gone on this journey through the multiverse that has changed what she can, what she's capable of. But in Chinese, there's a word for not allowed, bukai. There's a, a word for don't know how to, buhui, and then... There's a word for unable to, bunong. Interesting. So it's, you know, it's clear and it would kind of make sense that a Chinese person would, in an English speaking world, point out that ambiguity because it is clear. Chinese is a difficult language, but it has some things to recommend to English speakers. Well, it's interesting too, because her character in the sort of primary universe, like ours that we're familiar with. Her character actually isn't very good at Chinese, right? Like the grandfather basically points out to her like, man, your Chinese is terrible. <laughs> Which so I think is just really interesting in that way that like they're kind mm. of playing with that in a very subtle way. Yeah. They're clearly guys who enjoy the spoken word. And that, that sort of fiddling with possibility is a thing that modern philosophers have tended to do. Hat tip on your segue there. Very nice enough. Thank you. <laughs> when they're challenging certain assumptions of common sense, like how do I know that this this chair is really 
in front of me right now. And it's not just an illusion because they say, well, it's, you know, if you can imagine a world in which your brain is in a jar and being fed like sensory information to make you think that there's a chair there, then it's possible, right? And that sort of joy is taking that to a radical extreme where if I can imagine a world in which I'm the most powerful person in the world, then I can be, right? That's sort of how this universe or how this multiverse functions. Because the way it works is every choice any person makes creates branching universes where that choice either did or didn't happen. And therefore, if somebody could access themselves in each of those universes, they can learn and transcend any one version of themselves. And so Joy has done this to a radical extreme. I can't even take credit for this. This was really my husband, who's much more of the philosophy nerd. He was like, this is existentialism. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Well, buckle up, because this movie is up for Best Picture. And if it wins, I'm afraid a lot of people are going to take it seriously, not just as a movie, but as some sort of philosophical thing. In the end, they seem to be basically holding up choice as literally the end-all be-all of whatever this philosophy is that they have. It's Mm. like, well, if you choose it, then it is good. Yeah. Here's the tension. Kind of the culmination of this movie. So Evelyn confronts Joy's alter ego, and she sort of becomes like this Jobu Tidpaki, which is Joy's alter ego. Like you become so fractured that... You are no longer tethered to the one person you're supposed to be. So you're like, all of your branches somehow become collapsed into you and the one person. Yeah. And essentially, you have Joy and her mother, Evelyn, staring at the same thing where they're like, there is nothing and none of it matters. And essentially... The character of Joy is saying that, like, none of this matters. And the character of Evelyn is saying, no, I choose to let it matter. And that's what matters. (laughs) And it's like, now, I think you could be forgiven if you, like me, when I first, like, my first processing of it was, she chooses her family is what she's really choosing. Like, I think they do a lot, a lot of really good things in the movie. I would say that as a Christian, certainly the message that like family matters and like living a small life matters. So there's a scene between Evelyn and Waymond, but in the like movie star alternate reality and like they're outside of a premiere of one of her movies, just talking in an alleyway. And, you know, this is movie star Evelyn, but with the knowledge of the life of our Evelyn saying like you know was really sad that we we had a laundromat and like we were paying our taxes and Wayman basically says he's like that sounds like a great life to me like folding laundry together and paying taxes at the like culmination of it it's really Evelyn saying like I choose you as my daughter and I love you and I accept you and I think that like that is something everybody can get behind. So you're like, yeah, of course, like this is a good choice she's making. But when you peel back the onion a little bit, it's like, it's just sort of lacking underneath there. You're like, wait, why is this choice good? If nothing matters, like we've both come to the conclusion that nothing matters, but like I am choosing that family matters. Like, well, who's, where's the objective truth or reality to say that like choosing nihilism would have been okay. Because there are plenty of other universes where your family doesn't even exist and you're still pretty happy. 
Yeah. So who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I am happy that line about the laundry and taxes seems to be the big takeaway line for a lot of people who saw this movie, which is that's good news because that's like one of the best messages of the movie. But yeah, the um the existentialism is is very strangely delivered. Um there's like some Kierkegaard like Christian existentialism but with the Christianity stripped out where that kind of leap of faith where you know, life is meaningless, but I choose God anyway, you know, in the utter darkness. And that's sort of like, I don't know that much about Kierkegaard, but that seems to be his big, his big push for Christianity. He has this other thing in his system prior to that, where the person is learning that they're meaningless, which is not a, necessarily a bad thing, where the people are, are stripping away all these aspects of their lives that make them think that they're special and they're not actually and it's called leveling. Mm. I think they might have intentionally named the character Evelyn because it sounds like leveling because her whole deal mm. is that she's the worst version. There's nothing special about her compared to all the other Evelyns out there. And so she is uniquely suited to verse jump into all these other selves and to transcend any one of them, which is ultimately what the leveling in Kierkegaard is all about, to understand that you are loved by God, not because you're the strongest or the smartest or the best salesman or whatever but just because. Now, we would mm. say because God is love. I don't know if Kierkegaard would say that. Maybe he would. Um, I don't think this movie is saying that. It definitely doesn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In spite of all the like philosophical ambitions of the movie, there is no consideration of any transcendent reality at all. This is all there is, and it's not meaningful on its own. I mean, they ask, what is the truth? At one point, they're practically begging for Christians to weigh in. They're practically begging for Jesus to weigh in. And their, their answer is nothing matters. If nothing matters, then all the pain and guilt from making nothing of your life goes away. I don't understand at the end either. Like, Evelyn accepts that. Like, her daughter says that. Evelyn agrees, but says, I will cherish. Like, even if you're an insignificant speck, I will cherish that. Why would that persuade joy if it doesn't matter? Her premise is that mm. my mom doesn't matter because nothing matters. So if her mom, who doesn't matter, tells her, I will cherish that, I will cherish you, like, why should joy care? Yeah, it's like, and then it kind of, it's like, oh, it's this big philosophical thing. And then it's like, yeah, everybody just wants to be loved by their parents. Well, like, right. Every, everybody wants to be loved by their parents, which is true because things really do matter, right? Like yeah. life is not meaningless. But then, but then you would have to walk back like the, some of the other premises of this, that this movie has established. You know, you'd have to undo the existential nihilism and say, okay, well, no, nihilism is fundamentally flawed from the outset. And, you know, it really does matter. So, yeah, I don't know either. I'm also glad they, they sort of landed on family, even if it was family because of radical choice. There's at least one point in the movie where they sort of make it seem like the movie is ending on an extremely nihilist point. And I was <laughs> like, huh, really? That's where we're going with that. All right. <laughs> There's a fake ending to the movie that the movie star version of Michelle Yeoh is watching within the movie. <laughs> yeah, so meta. In a way, it feels like that is where they wanted to end the movie. Mm. And, and it sort of feels like the second half of the movie is oh. like, nah, we know, like, things matter. Like, we're coming around. It's like... We'll placate it, you audience people who would be mad at us if we ended it the way we wanted. That's kind of... It, it sort of feels that way to me where it's like, nah, we don't really believe that. It's like, but you kind of do 
they never really resolve the meaning question, right? Like, so you've established that nothing matters, but then you don't actually go far enough to tell me, like, why does family matter? (laughs) You were saying it matters. And, like, that's what, that's sort of the saving grace here. But it's kind of this self-contained thing. Well, okay. So that that's an interesting point. Maybe we can use that to pivot to one other question that I had, which has to do with Wayman's sort of way of living, which is to be kind to people. And that's, quote, how he fights, which is kind of an interesting expression of Wu Wei, uh, which is this principle in largely in Taoism, which is this Chinese philosophy, not just Chinese, this Asian philosophy, which is where the yin yang yin yang symbol Mm. comes from which i thought was neatly embodied in this movie like yin yang is like the light part with the dark in the middle and the dark part with the light in the middle in a circle and there are two symbols that are each components of that in the movie the everything bagel is the dark part and the googly eye is the light part with the with the dark part in the middle which i thought was neat anyway wayman's whole deal is being kindness not in terms of like literally physically fighting people but just killing them with kindness basically and Evelyn learns from this in the end, and she basically grasps that, no, my husband really does have value because he is the kindest presence in my life, and everybody needs somebody who is that kind to them. And this is her sort of reaffirmation of her marriage to him, and also her affirmation of her daughter's same-sex relationship with the white girl character, which, you know, we obviously are not going to endorse that. We're not endorsing a lot in this movie. But it raised some odd questions about how this movie treats same-sex relationships, which is it's attempting to be approving of. But Kara, do you choose a romantic partner based on who is kind to you only? If I go back and consult love and responsibility, (laughs) I would say it certainly needs more than that. No. Go on. Well, that's what was strange to me is like, if kindness resulted in in a sexual and nuptial relationship, then you would just marry your first best friend. And maybe not even stop there. You might seek to marry whoever was kind to you, even if it was multiple people. And I don't think that's what marriage is. Like, it definitely a kind of, it's a sort of friendship, but that's not enough. Like, that's not what causes nuptial love. It just seems like they're confusing philia, friendship, with eros, Mm. love ordered to sexual unity, or at least in a human sense. So, I guess just isolating the Evelyn and Waymond relationship, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I think that there's, like, the point about kindness So I think that they do a poor job of illustrating their past love, but you kind of get hints of the idea that like, like she left China with him because they were really in love. I feel like the acting on it is maybe like they don't sell that very well. (laughs) I feel like her character sort of seems reluctant, which is maybe just like a more taciturn adult looking back disapprovingly in her memory on on what happened but i got the sense that they like were at one point sort of genuinely head over heels in love with each other but that she just didn't value him and so like over time kind of got worn down and it wasn't just the kindness but it was actually the fact that he was actually successful. Like the turning point I thought was interesting is in the laundromat, him, you know, giving a talking to Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Oh, the IRS is what changed. Yeah. The IRS agent like changes her mind. And Evelyn finally realizes that like, 
even though she'd always sort of derided women for bringing her cookies and doing all these things as sort of like have a natural salesman buttering people up that she always thought was him being silly. She's like, oh, this stuff actually, it's not just because it's kind, but it's also effective. Hmm. <laughs> Which is maybe a little utilitarian, but <laughs> at least that, that felt to me like part of the turn is that it wasn't just like, oh, kindness is like a good thing. It was like, oh, kindness is actually just as strong as fighting. And just as like fighting feels effective and can be, but it's that sort of like her acknowledgement of the soft influence and the fact that 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 also is a form of power. So Evelyn reaffirms her marriage to Waymond because his kindness is effective. I feel like it's it is a little lacking, but I think that was like at least her turning point where it's like he's not incompetent because right. I think that you're kind of building up this like. She feels like she has to do everything and he's not helping and he's not effective. And so I think it's like, oh, actually, he is helping. He is effective. And and it sort of enlightens her like as to this this way of being. I think she just like changes her perspective and then Mm -hmm. can can be more open to the idea that like the ways he tries to be loving to her hmm. she should be accepting of because i think that's the other thing is she's just like hardened herself and you know if you ever read anything from like dr john gottman who i highly recommend great <laughs> relationship guru but he talks a lot about like people giving bids for affection and like how you right. need to be receptive to them and i it sort of felt like oh finally she is being open to that again okay so how does that relate to her justification to the to her father of her daughter's relationship? There, that's a good question. Because <laughs> I think I buy that in isolation, but in the in yeah. one of the potential climaxes of the movie where she's sort of healing family ruptures, she's saying, no, dad, this is your granddaughter's girlfriend. Yes, I said girlfriend, because what I've learned from my own husband that that kindness is important to a spouse and everyone needs something like that. Now, in Evelyn's life, I think you're right. There's more to it than that. There's also she's learning something about what it means to be kind, not just that somebody is kind to her. Mm. But with her, how the, how does that translate with the daughter's relationship then? I guess putting aside the framing about kindness, it feels to me more like this sort of thread about expectation And you kind of mentioned it with the idea that like Evelyn feels sort of like a failure, right? Like I left my family to go like make this big life in America. And instead are, we're like a struggling business and she's got all these side hobbies that are sort of unfulfilled. They're in trouble with the IRS. And it feels like, you know, she's kind of embarrassed about her daughter, which is why she won't tell her father. She's like, Oh, it's about respect for him and like he won't be accepting but it also feels like it's a protective measure for her Mm. like she doesn't want to deal with her father's additional disappointment in her and it feels to me like it's more about like acceptance of herself and of the situation i don't want to say the situation i think it's more about the acceptance of herself and like i'm not going to put on a face anymore because I accept who I am. I accept who my daughter is. And therefore, like, I'm going to be honest with my father because I am accepting of the reality of the situation. Okay. I think that works in the logic of the movie. Like, as the, you know, the movie is saying this is who they are. 
I don't know why the dad why the dad would go for that. <laughs> I didn't just say, okay, well, back to China with me. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, I guess I didn't really uh that's a good question about the the what was his reaction? I don't remember. He was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I mean it feels a little bit like or at least it felt to me more like, oh, these old people who are stuck in their ways can progress if they're viewing it through the lens of I accept who you are and I love you and therefore I accept everything that goes along with it. Yeah. And I guess I endorse whatever activities. I mean, I, again, it's like where there's no objective truth here. <laughs> so yeah. It's like what by what measure could you reject your daughter's choices? Sure. They're all equally good and fine. And again, this is the problem with relativism, existentialism at all. The other thing I, I had about the same sex attraction was like the all, the hot dog finger world where Michelle Yeoh's in, in a relationship with Jamie Lee Curtis. If your choices don't matter, and one of those choices is whether you're in a relationship with a man or a woman, does that mean that there's no such thing as a same-sex orientation? Then it's not mm. essential to who you are, because nothing else is? <laughs> is that what they're saying? That's a good question. I mean, but then, again, would they say that that's not a choice? And, like, this is just a totally different, like, it's so far back. I don't, The whole finger, <laughs> the hot dog finger world to me is just like, I can fast forward <laughs> through all those scenes, they don't matter. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I have, I have questions about how how this stuff is articulated. Which you know what, it's a movie. I'm happy to leave it as just a movie, but I don't think that's how it's meant to be received. I think you're supposed to have a philosophical takeaway, if not more than one philosophical takeaway. This is a truly baffling movie. I thought it might be like a straightforward family thing. I knew, it, I knew that there was some like family reconciliation. I was like, oh, this is going to be good, and then things just got really weird. Well, things have gotten out of hand for us, so we should probably end it there. <laughs> That's my attempt at a segue. How to do? I like it. I think it's good. <laughs> Thanks, Carrot. Thanks for having me. Please be sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.